Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Caster Calls with Zombie Grub. I think it's episode 23. I'm going to keep forgetting to keep track. Um, <laughs> it's, it's one of those. And today I'm here with Sideshow or Sideshow Gaming. I assume you just go by Sideshow. I do, yeah. It's going to work out. Yeah, nice. Um, so he is a, uh, well, I mean, you've been a, a couple of different things at this point, but uh, I know you as uh, an analyst for the Overwatch League, and you were literally on the analyst desk for quite a few years, and they actually... Yeah push you guys onto the front lines and uh, you and Brenna have been actually doing casting uh, for the previous year of Overwatch League. So if you don't know him, guys, he's actually a heck of a lot of fun. He's been doing great work. And it, it seems like you kind of uh, came up at the exact right time. But I think, I, if I remember correctly, your background is in TF2, it actually. Is, yeah. So it made a lot of sense to go into Overwatch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was just kind of hanging out for a while, wondering whether it was something that could ever become full-time. Not not specifically the casting, but just esports in general. I, I did a bunch of um, journalist work and some um, events management and this kind of stuff, like sponsor liaison. I just basically dipped my hand into whatever pool possible um, because I recognized that you just basically need skills and experience in order to get a job in esports. There's no degree that you can get that will qualify you for any job. So it's basically just do you understand the space and do you have experience and a willingness to, to work in the space and kind of learn from your mistakes? So yeah. that's that's what I did for a bunch of years before Overwatch reared its head and I uh, decided to try and take the punt over there. And so were you literally just picking up all the odd jobs? I mean, were you in college when you were doing this or out of, mm. are you working or what? Yeah, I was, I was in college at the time. I was, um, it, I was kind of in like a weird state because... Um, I, I was a top player in TF2. TF2 had a really small scene, so it always makes me giggle when I say that because I, I think anyone could have been a top player in TF2 if you just put the time in. And I did. I put like, I think it was like 8,000 hours into that game since 2010 over like the course of something like four years, which is an obscene amount of time. That is a ridiculous amount of hours. Um, and then w once I was at kind of a top level, I was just, I uh, happened to be a, uh, someone who was very heavily invested in the scene because I'd spent so much time in the scene. So I picked up a bunch of different jobs that just needed doing in order to maintain the status quo. I wasn't really trying to push the needle at all. I was just trying to make sure that the matches had people that would be able to cast them and uh, that people wanted, you know, some roster was changed and people wanted an article written about it. So I would write an article about it. And just slowly over time, that became more and more... Um, I became more and more involved in specifically the European part of the production, which was all run by one organization. And I just started taking on more and more tasks and kind of dipping my uh, toes into different jobs. And, and at the same time that I was doing that, there was always a push within the TF2 community to become bigger than it actually was. So instead of being a very um, insulated community, it actually was constantly a game where people were looking out at the rest of esports to try and figure out what tf2 had done wrong right it was like we were always looking at other places specifically the other valve games like cs and dota which is a ridiculous comparison but it was the one that was most obvious because they're the same publisher and a lot of people within the community would be like well why why aren't our games why aren't our broadcasts able to look like that why aren't they able to be why isn't the same kind of like fan engagement? Why isn't, you know, why isn't the viewership there? Why aren't the events as big? Why aren't the sponsors interested, et cetera, et cetera. And so just by answering these questions or attempting to answer them took me down paths of looking at other esports and seeing what is done better in those, um, in those esports, seeing what a more professional scene looks like, learning from other casters and journalists and stuff like that that were in those other scenes. So 
it, it was a very natural transition then to realize, oh, it is actually possible to make a living in esports. It's just not possible to make a living within TF2 um, and kind of picking a moment to branch out into something else. Well, this initial desire, though, it sounds like it was entirely bred from just really liking TF2. Yes, I, it totally was. It was a game that um, one of my one of my school friends introduced me to back in 2010. I, I don't know how old I was at that time. Let me run the math. I guess I was 15 at the time. And um, yeah, I got the orange box, loved all the other games that were in it as well. You know, played the shit out of Half-Life and Portal and stuff. Um, but TF2 was the one that really grabbed my attention um, because it was the one that he played. And I didn't have, I, I, I can't remember whether I was unusual in this sense, but back then, if you wanted to play games with somebody, I would go round to someone's house to play games like a local two-player game with them. Um, in terms of like multiplayer games, most of my friends were console players, so they didn't actually, there wasn't, there wasn't kind of the same sense of meeting up online and playing with them that you could get when it came to TF2. None of my friends were really into like Counter-Strike and stuff like that, so I hadn't been introduced to them. So TF2 was just casual enough that it pulled in one of my other friends to playing it online, and it was a total new experience because you had connections with the players that you actually played with repeatedly. You know, you hop onto a community server and you have leaderboards where you can get better and better you you meet the same people because they come to the same community servers repeatedly and so it was such a vastly different experience to me than playing um multiplayer call of duty online where you're just randomly thrown into lobbies you never know who you're playing against even if you buddy up with somebody you don't get that same uh, same feel like your time is actually being used in a social manner as well as in a gaming manner um so yeah, to, and and then obviously the game itself hooked me after the social component and I just tried to get better and better. It's kind of odd. 2010 for me was definitely, I mean, obviously that was the, the year that StarCraft 2 came out, so I was getting into that. But um, I, I would have identified it as a uh, long past the point of going to each other's houses and, and yeah. playing with the with them. So that is kind of weird to hear. It sounds like TF2 is, uh, it, it brought some of the charm that, you know, the years prior had been had had uh, when it came to games yes yeah you know i played the n64 version of starcraft with a friend who came over to my house you know 20 years ago at this point but um as soon as you got into the, the serious gaming uh it was it was all online by 2010 so i mean that 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 kind of is a good thing sometimes you said it creates this like really great community um albeit you know a bit smaller than you would hope uh, which is unfortunate because I know a lot of people still think that TF2 is is the best arena shooter. It was, it's yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It's a good game. Like, it's really well designed. The movement is clean. The mechanics are great. It's got a great balance as well of like team play and uh, and individual moments too. It, they never really found a format that worked fantastically. Like, the format itself is a little dull at times, but it's also got some really fast paced, great moments. So, I think it was just missing the the. Um, the the little push to get it over the edge because it came before um it, it, yeah it kind of was released at a time when developers weren't thinking about esports whatsoever like there, there were some in other games obviously like you know quake and counter strike and these kind of games have been played competitively for ages before that but the communities were so niche that the developers you know weren't actively supporting it and weren't actively thinking about it uh, thinking right. about it in terms of marketing or in terms of something that could actually be successful for their game so it just it just got lost yeah that makes sense i mean blizzard 
had designed StarCraft 2 with the eSport in mind, actually. But as far as, as the, the format that we know now, the formula that we know now, where it's you know very publisher-driven, it was just totally unknown back in the day. And that was part of Blizzard's problem, at which they, they learned throughout the years from starcraft actually but uh yeah you know they they also didn't push it as a publisher esport they they just let you know mlgs and iems and the dream hacks pick them up and so that but that did usher in kind of what we know as the uh the second coming of esports i mean yeah right there was csgo there was quake there's a lot of things happening over in europe but obviously the the big explosion was starcraft one in, in korea sure years and years ago so it's it's kind of unfortunate that tf2 did come out at that time uh, especially when you consider that if it come out six years later, as as Overwatch had done, then that might have been the the better market for it as well. Yeah, uh, shooters yeah. grew more and more popular over the years, and clearly RTS you know went down, and <laughs> shooters came up in all aspects, including arena shooters, which now is a really big deal because Valorant has a uh, also you know come out and actually it's very CS:GO, but clearly it's got all those spell casting abilities that gets uh, the more casuals fans hooked. So. It's too bad it didn't come out at the right time, but that happens. And uh, obviously, it still gave you a fantastic pathway into exactly, the world yeah. of esports. So you got a lot to, uh, I guess, uh, you know, yeah. you always feel indebted to your first esport. And but- it was also, it was a great learning experience for a bunch of people as well. Like, so many of the big personalities that are actually involved in Overwatch came from TF2. Like, some of the biggest uh, are from there, like Seagull, who streams, you know, and, and went into doing full time streaming. And then uh, Super, who's currently, I think, like the biggest streamer that regularly streams uh, the competitive side of Overwatch, is on the the double defending champion team, the San Francisco Shock. Back-to-back champions is better than double defending. That's the normal (laughs) phrase that people use. And then like Avast, another big community figure, myself and and Bren, you know, like so much of the, the, um, the, the big figures that have actually been successful came from that TF2 community. And I feel like the reason is because you were forced to just do stuff on your own. And you were just forced to do stuff. And if you didn't do stuff, you weren't going to get anywhere. So people, it naturally selected for people who want to get out there and, and create content and be more uh, vocal and explorative in, in the kind of stuff that, they, that they're interested in doing. Um, which, which is something that I always recommend to people who are trying to get into casting as well, is just do stuff. And that everyone always says that, and no one provides specific examples ever. So I can imagine being like somebody who's trying to get into casting, and they're like, just do stuff. Like, what? Like what? Just put up a one-view one video on my YouTube channel. Like, how is that going to help? But I think it's about, you know, finding the areas in which you can actually have impact and going into those areas. So, like, if you notice that there's nobody who's, yeah, I don't know, writing articles to cover things or like no one's doing off-season reporting or no one's, uh, or there's like a gap in some community uh, tournament that needs a caster or, or interviews. Interviews is a massive one. There are very, very rarely good interviews done in any esports scene that I've looked at, uh, especially when things aren't happening offline because offline is where people actually directly get into t- in contact with the players and, and uh, members of staff and do interviews with them. But I mean, interviews are such, just like such an easy road of being able to get um, some attention on your content because you're doing them with somebody else that is providing the, the, the draw for the viewer anyway. Anyway, that is the, that's the kind of um, advice, I think, that a lot of like, people getting into esports now have missed because they've missed the time when you had to do that. Like, you don't have to do that anymore in order to 
contribute to an esports community. You can simply consume. But in the past, you could you can't you couldn't really just consume because no one else was just producing it because they weren't getting paid to produce it. It was a it was a community effort to produce the content and then enjoy the products of of what you had uh, created. Yeah. Again, it just sounds so weird because if you had, you know, just talked about this, that would have been like, oh, he's talking about like early 2000s. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it really was. We were stuck in the past. <laughs> we, were, we were stuck but, in the past. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what you had to do for like a brood war. You know, you, you, you go to Team Liquid and then there'd be one guy who has access to like a 360 stream, which is slightly better yeah. than the 240 stream that's going on. And they would write what happened in those games because they like no one else is getting these access. And then eventually that person would get burnt out, you know, and so you'd have to pick it up. And uh, it was the only way to actually, as you said, like get content out there. You couldn't just sit there and, and consume, 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 which eventually did happen. But um, yeah, I'll get back to the the interview part later on. But so, I mean, for you, when you are doing all these, uh, you know, things, uh, oftentimes for free, I'm guessing <laughs> there isn't a yes. lot of payment. There isn't a lot of payment no. in esports earlier on. Uh, well, how did you get the attention of, of Overwatch League? Um, I, I vaguely recall kind of watching you something or another, maybe a video that you had done. And that's about the time that I followed you on Twitter. Because like, oh, this guy's actually you know, pretty smart. He's you know, good at articulating. Um, and But I, I'd still had only known you as like a guy who was coming in from TF2. And the Overwatch League, I don't think mm. it was quite set in stone yet. But it was like the worst kept secret. Everyone yeah. knew that Blizzard was going to push their eSport. Um, but anyways, like how did how did someone who kind of you know, relatively came from nowhere compared to some of the guys they drew in, right? Like some of them was one of the big ones, but then these other guys were working for ESL, doing multiple video games, and and you you're here just kind of like doing whatever you can find for TF2. How did you wiggle your way into the Overwatch League? Uh, just by 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 working by trying to learn the game as much as possible is basically the answer to that question. It's the same as what I'm doing at the moment in Valorant as well is that if you're actually willing to put in the effort to learn the game, most other people don't do that. I know that sounds really stupid, but a lot of people don't learn how the games work that they work in. Like, And that'll extend all the way up to like the people who are in charge of the, the business or who are GMs of teams or are uh, producers for shows and stuff like that. Like the, the big thing that's lacking in my experience from working in multiple esports now is, is knowledge of like how the game actually functions and, and how you extend storylines and stuff out of that. So my plan for getting into Overwatch was basically, I'm just going to learn this game and I'm just going to kind of outwork the other people that are interested in, um, in getting into it. And so I did, um, I, I, I just watched all of the content that I could. I watched uh, everything, all of the streams. A lot of the TF2 players were uh, going into Overwatch at the time as well and kind of streaming their POVs and stuff. So I was watching them. I was occasionally chatting the, to them to figure out like, I don't really understand why you're picking X hero over another hero. And they'd kind of briefly sum up their thought process. Tell you what, though, as well, players are a notoriously terrible place for getting information <laughs> because they 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 intuitively understand the game, but they're normally pretty terrible at articulating those thoughts because they don't model the processes that are going on inside their head. They don't actually model the game in a in a conscious manner. They just intuitively understand it because they've played enough of it. Like they they're like, oh yeah, Reinhardt's a great pick here. If you actually ask them to explain in detail, like why, sometimes they'll get stuck in the weeds and not be able to answer. But they know it's the right pick, but it's not always the most useful to to get in touch with them. So 
I wouldn't say that was a major component of it. But yeah, it was just it was just the fact that I was willing to um something actually that was uh incredibly important in getting me into the Overwatch League was the couple of events that came beforehand. So I was working in Overwatch full time since uh May 2016 when the game was released. Um uh, at that point I had dropped out of university. I'd actually been kicked out of university. Um and I was just doing article writing, basically. So I was just writing up articles on roster changes, tournament recaps, any interesting opinion pieces that I could come up with, stuff like that, um, and interviews with players, this kind of stuff. And and so I thought, well, the best way to actually get into the scene is to know more than everybody else. And so part of that is I'm going to watch all the games and try and really think about what I'm watching and try and understand the core principles at play. But the other part is I'm going to know all the players. I'm going to know all of their player backgrounds. I'm going to know like what what uh, heroes they play, what styles they play, what the trades have been between everybody all the way back in the scene and that kind of stuff. So I, I was trying to amass like this database of information so that if anyone ever wanted me to go on broadcast, I'd be able to tell you all about this player's niche history and somebody else's you know, uh, storyline within the scene. Um, and uh, that level of preparation breeds confidence as well when you actually speak. It allows you to be more articulate because you don't have to worry and wonder about what you're going to say. You already know the information. You don't have to bluff it or bullshit it. Um, so I always found that incredibly helpful for being able to get in. And then the 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 Overwatch League just needed, uh, sorry, the Overwatch League, the Overwatch scene for some of its smaller tier two events needed people. And because I had been doing a combination of YouTube videos and articles about it, my name was kind of in the running uh, from other people, knowing that I knew the players and knew the teams and knew the game. Um, and also having been a caster in the past as well, it was just like, oh, we'll give this guy a shot and see if he's any good. And then actually from there, it's based on your performance of whether or not you are actually good. Right, yeah. So when did the actual Overwatch League um, reach out to you? Like, how did, how did that work out? That was during um, Contenders. So we had done, 2017, we had, I think, seven weeks of Contenders somewhere in, uh, somewhere in, like, July running to September, I want to say, something like that. Um, and, I, and so I flew out to Colorado, and I was working from Colorado for seven weeks. Um, we were living in a hotel with a bunch of the other casters as well. And some of the more some of the more senior casting figures, like Monty and Doa, were giving us active advice on our. Um, I wasn't casting at the time, actually. Bren was casting; I was on the desk, but they were still giving us advice on, you know, presence on camera and uh, articulating things and adding entertainment to the broadcast as well. And I was doing it with Puckett too, who then went on to be the desk host for the Overwatch League. And uh, over the course of the seven weeks, I just kind of we not only impressed them with what we were able to do on broadcast, but also were personable enough to for them to enjoy working with us. So it was like a it has to be a two pronged approach, right? You can't just be the guy that's good on broadcast, but you're a dickhead to work with because then no one wants to actually work with you. No one's going to recommend you. So yeah, it, it was a combination of both. Like I think, um, especially Puckett, who I worked with closely on the desk, enjoyed the knowledge that I was able to bring, but also the the synergy and the banter between me and Bren particularly. So I think we got recommended as like a, a duo over to the Overwatch League. And that happened, I think, in like October 2017, um, just right at the end of Contenders, which was the first ever event in the Blizzard Arena. 
um, this this finals event, first LAN event that um, I had done for Overwatch. No, that's not true actually, because I did the one in Germany as well. But it was the first big event with um, with a live crowd and stuff that I had done. Okay. And uh, yeah, they just got in touch with me during that and asked if I would be interested to work on the desk, which I was. I've done desk analyst work before and and uh, a bunch of other stuff, so I was happy to work in whatever capacity. Uh, and so uh, when you had you know made this uh, like the chemistry with Bren, did you did you make it or did you was it experience? Did you guys talked before? Um, yes, we he he was from TF2 as well. So we had actually worked together um, since I think it was 2016. I actually reviewed Bren's first ever cast. He um, <laughs> I was already doing casting for two years before that, and he was kind of um, I want to say coming up in the scene, but he wasn't really coming up. He was just he was just a player at a lower level who had been doing some casting over his team's uh, scrims because he thought it would be fun. And he, so he sent the the recording in to me to review. And it was pretty terrible, as all first casts are, which mine absolutely was too, two years earlier. Um, and so I gave him some pointers, some stuff to work on. We worked with each other a couple of times after that. We were never like a duo, but um, after when we actually started working together a little more in the late 2016 and um, throughout 2017, we just developed more synergy together and just became friends, which translates through to the broadcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, It's a bit weird, though, with the Overwatch League. Um, you know, for StarCraft, it sometimes feels like it's one of the remaining uh, esports out there that actually doesn't bother pairing people up, which, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I've talked to five different, different esports at this point. Like, um and all the big esports are pushing pairs you know there's always a in mind at the very least when they start to to create their their leagues which is just very different than what i i was i guess Mm. experienced with but um did did you actually did they tell you that that was how it was going to be were you involved at all in the overwatch league i guess uh, planning or was it really just like hey we got this already all figured out and you're on the list yeah, they just kind of got in touch with me and said, uh, we're interested in having you on the desk, um, which was unexpected at that point. I was, yeah, I, I even though I was on the way up in the Overwatch scene, I, I wasn't, you know, Contenders was the first big event that I had done. So I was anticipating getting in the next year around. Like I had this career plan in my head where I was like, okay, probably missed the first wave because I didn't really get in early enough. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll carry on grinding. I'll do some tier two stuff and then I'll get in in uh, 2019 instead. So I was surprised when they offered me the job in 2018. Um, but yeah, I asked them, oh, who would I be working with? And they said, Bren. And I said, you know, Bren's never worked on an analyst desk before. And they were like, yeah, but I think he'll be fine. Like, he'll pick it up. And I was like, yeah, sure. I, I guess that'll work. <laughs> and I think for us all, it took us some time to figure out like what the dynamic should be. But I think we we very much grew into it. I think there was always an idea at the beginning that everything should be very uh, straight-laced and, you know, very professional feel to it and what we figured out is it should just be way looser than that like the more the more stuffy you make it the the harder it is on yourself like you're putting all of this pressure on yourself to fulfill those expectations that you've you've only put those on yourself anyway to begin with no one was expecting you to act um stuffy and polished and and suited up right from the off so the the more we loosened it up the better it ended up being so in the Overwatch League, I mean, how often are you guys actually hanging out? Because um, I know you kind of, you, you'd have shifts a little bit more. I know this year has been very odd, but um, yeah. 
did you guys always make time to hang out with each other after the, the broadcast or was it more just like a show up and work with each other and then go on home? No, it was definitely a, a big group of friends, uh, especially in the first year, but it did continue for, I mean, obviously this year has been wildly different, but it, it would have been a total different kind of fun this year as well for, for other reasons. But moving back to 2018, the, the first year, it was a lot of people that were moving to LA for the first time. So we didn't really have um, any, any understanding of what, what there was to, to, to do, or we didn't have any pre-existing friends. There weren't other people to hang around with. So we all just hung around in a group the entire time, um, which was a, a great experience uh, for me uh, to be able to have that connection of people that are friends in a new city that you can live with and share an apartment with so you don't have to spend a ridiculous amount of money. But also you have mentorship figures there as well. Particularly in the first year, I would say Pocket and Monty were big uh, mentor kind of figures. To If you have a question about how the business side of esports works, the professionalism side, the actual craft of it at all, you can go to those guys and they will tell you like how it has been done in the past, how they believe it should be done. Plus, they come at it from totally different ways as well, which is the joy of being able to talk to so many different people that were involved in Overwatch League. They, they pulled people from all different sides of, uh, of the, the sphere. So, yeah, that was um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of fun, honestly, to hang out with everybody. And that extended into 2019 as well. At that point, people have developed more um, new friendships within Los Angeles and, and other people to hang out with. So it wasn't so much one big conglomerate just roaming around the city, <laughs> tearing shit up. But it was, uh, it was still a, a pretty tight-knit um, friend group. Now, this year has been... <laughs> I've been locked in my apartment for nine months and I am getting crazy. But, uh, but it would have been fun because the original plan was to travel around from city to city, uh, going to various different homestands each time with a different group of people. So each time you get that same, hey, we're hanging out in, like I did one in Dallas and in Washington, and we just, we roamed around in a big band around Washington and Dallas, just looking for stuff to do on our off days when there was a rehearsal day. And then after the event was done, we're roaming around bars, trying to find the best places to hang out and chill afterwards. And that was awesome. It has a different feel because you don't, you're hanging out with different people each time. Um, but but it's it, it's just a great kind of camaraderie that that develops, and it's different to stuff that's like I, when I hear the CS:GO casters talking about that kind of event camaraderie, it reminds me of back in TF2, where when you went to a LAN event, you weren't actually sure you were ever going to see those people again, because some of them might live on the different side of the world, some of them might not end up being players again because they might get kicked from their teams and not go to the LAN again, they might give up because the the line of work isn't for them like there's a very different feel when you're doing one-off events repeatedly um because i feel like you you kind of have to cherish the moments as if it might be you know months until you see the person again but for the overwatch league you know that you're working with these guys day in and day out and so you're just like hanging out with them all the time without ever the sense that you are doing something special it's just an awesome base layer of your of, of your life, just hanging out with people all the time. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's really too bad that you know, this year happened when it did. Um, you know, obviously, the, the homesteads were going to be really fun and see how that was going to work out. 
uh, <clears throat> and it was, you know, big for like the, the entire like esport world. Uh, kind of all eyes were on Overwatch, and then whatever really got tested. Yeah, and even even us, we had a three year deal that started this year that was supposed to really kickstart, and it just you know got cut yeah. off at uh, Poland. So really disappointed about that. But it's awesome to hear that you guys actually um, are, are that close because I, I feel like CS:GO. I've, I've been to a couple of their. Um, their after parties is not quite correct, but where they hang out and then everyone mm. goes anyways. Um, and after the yeah, after parties, they're all very friendly and they all hang out. But then, you know, I've actually peeked into their rooms. They're like talent rooms because they're like right next to each yeah. other. And they're just like, more, like someone's playing like a shooter. Other person's like on their phone and they, and they also sometimes work in shifts as well. So they don't really, I mean, when Starcraft happens, we get there all at 8 a.m., and we all sit there and just like, you know, watch people come and go for the the broadcast. And then we leave at 8 p.m. <laughs> and then yeah. we go and hang out with a bar at the bar. So this concept of just like not constantly being surrounded uh, by the people that you're working with is actually I, I, I obviously it works out fine. But I actually massively prefer the way that StarCraft does it because luckily we get along. Yeah. Every one of us. And I think yeah. that's something that can be one of those like um, uh, things that, you know, you don't you don't. People aren't first to mention like, oh, it's because we don't like each other. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, no, we have shifts and, you know, we, we have sure. other stuff to do. But there's, you know, there's drama. There always is. Um, glad to hear that like Overwatch League didn't really exist either. You guys are all just a bunch of, of friends who like this game, who also get the pleasure of working yeah. with each other multiple days out of the week. Yeah, I mean, um, five of them were living with each other this year as well. Like that was the intention <laughs> yeah. to have uh five of them living in the same house together just the, the whole idea this year was when we're not at the homestands we're going to be in that house making content like full time and, and so we were just rotating between the two like occasionally you would fly out and you'd be like oh hey i haven't seen you in a while and then you go back to the house and then you're making more content over there the, yeah it's it's very much been an attempt to make it uh r- pretty tight-knit i mean there, there have also been like big changes as well in the Overwatch League when, uh, you know, Monty Doe have left, Semler's left, Puckett's left, like, the, you know, these big figures have, that, that were integral to building the project in the first place have left and made the result a lot different to what it, what it started out being. Um, so th- those also had a big impact because when you're hanging out with people all the time and when they have such a large creative input in all of what you're doing and what you're working on, because the Overwatch League as well is like, it was quite a collaborative project in terms of the 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 aims of what we should be doing on the broadcast. I wouldn't say that the talent was always able to uh, have their wishes f- felt in the product every time, but we would have semi-regular discussions about what we wanted um, each aspect of the broadcast to look like. It wasn't just the desk click hanging out with each other and the casting clicks hanging out with each other. So when you lose those figures, you're not just losing like people that you would regularly hang out with or, or at least talk to. You're also losing that large creative input on in the broadcast. So it changes the dynamic from a year to year, more so than um, if you're just having sporadic events, I feel, because then you're, uh, you, kind of, you, never have that, uh, you never have that kind of tight-knit structure to begin with, so it doesn't feel like you've lost anything, I, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. It's kind of a, a weird thing I hadn't considered before. But yeah, like you, you, you're kind of assuming that like it's a you know year contract. I'm guessing or sort of a year. Um, and you know when the person leaves, they're actually just you know they're mostly gone. I mean, is there an opening for Doha to come back and cast Overwatch League? Maybe I have no idea. But 
you know that they're trying to move on. If someone were to stop casting StarCraft II events, they wouldn't. It, it's very rare for them to be like, I'm done. I'm moving on. Yeah, Usually yeah. kind of just like they, they start doing other stuff. And then if the call comes months later for the fifth, fifth event, they finally pick up the phone and say, actually, yeah, I want to do StarCraft event. And that's totally yeah, yeah. normal. Um, so that, that is kind of weird having to almost you know say like a permanent goodbye <laughs> yeah it's it's more like a normal job in that sense right yeah. of like if someone moves on they they just seem seem like they've simply moved on to do something mm-hmm. else and then your interactions with them extend to different esports or kind of inter esports things rather than yeah rather than the same thing that you were previously collaborating on creatively and and how does that in general like the fact that you guys have to work at a year here or or short of a year again and then for instance this year you guys are going to have I rumors say anyways, you're gonna have a particularly long off season. I mean, how does that work out as far as how you view this career, right? Because Overwatch League is as far as compared to other esports, a little less on the freelance side, more like, okay, if I sign on, I've got a certain amount of time to work here. But then suddenly there's like huge gaps in work. Yeah. Um, I mean, how much do you do you make sure that you're out there putting your name out for other esports is it something that you actively try to do or only when an esport arrives that you're interested in do you worry about your return to overwatch league if you get too involved in this other esport yeah it's a, it's a weird situation i mean when when i signed in 2018 um i didn't know that i would be brought back for 2019 and i thought the same when i was signed in 2019 as well um I, you know, each year that you sign, you know more about the direction of the company and you know more about the um, longevity of the product. You know more about your uh, negotiating power and your position to be re-signed in the future as well. So you get more and more confident about that. But because you never know for sure and because it makes up such a large portion of your uh, revenue for the year, it becomes a major issue if at the end of the year they were like oh actually no we don't want to work with you so when we first signed in 2018 me and bren particularly decided that we weren't going to make any large investments in living in la in case they decided to drop us at the end of the year and we had to move back to the uk um we only had a one-year visa so if they weren't going to pick it up we weren't returning to los angeles we would certainly weren't living there and so large expenditures like a sofa or a bed seemed unreasonable. And so we lived We lived for five months on an air mattress. I can't, I, I, I don't want to say that as if me and Bren were sharing an air mattress. We did buy one each. We were, we were, we were uh, able to rationalize that. But yeah, we, we were really locked into this thought. Also, it was rationalizing laziness, let's be real. But we really did have this idea in our heads of like making the, living situation reflect the temporary nature of the contract and not wanting to permanently set up roots in LA when we didn't know how long we would be involved in the Overwatch League form. Um, and th- that's obviously lessened now. I mean, I have a long-term partner here. I do have a bed. I bought a bed <laughs> fairly early on in 2018. But um, yeah, I, you know, and now I have uh, major roots in LA after living here for three years. But the um the 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 status of the the work is always an interesting situation because you have the safety net of the Overwatch League, which is something that a lot of other freelance people really lack in esports. And the the 
I have absolutely no problems with the compensation that I've ever received from Blizzard because it makes up for the fact that the offseason is is the offseason, that you don't really have too much work in there. Um, the you know I'm never never scrimping at the end of the year because that is accounted for. Like they understand that if you commit to the Overwatch League for a year, you are essentially committing to Overwatch for the year. Because if you want to simultaneously learn another esport to be able to dabble in it in the off season, I mean you could only you can only reasonably do that if you are doing a role where you don't need in depth knowledge of a game. If you're trying to do interviewing or desk hosting. Or maybe you could scrape play-by-play if you also played the game really heavily on the side as well. Something like that. But if you're trying to get a job as like a color caster or an analyst, which were my primary positions if I'm going to dabble in another esport, in order to put the time in to actually learn another esport like I'm currently doing with Valorant, it is silly. It is absolutely ridiculous kind of kind of time investment to do that. Uh, at least to the level that I would actually want to do it, you know, to, to not half-ass it is is truly ridiculous. So that has always been reflected in the compensation so i've never really felt like i have to really actively fill the off season in order to survive that's never been like a major motivation for me but things like fleshing out a youtube channel fleshing out a twitch channel uh creating these other streams of revenue are always good things to do at the same time they increase brand awareness they put your image out to different places you're actually creating more content and putting it out in the world in order to get more eyes on you and you can translate that into into sponsorship deals or just the primary revenue that comes through YouTube and Twitch uh, too. So that those have been my primary um, outside sources of revenue at the same time as working on the Overwatch League because they have they have other benefits as well other than purely the the money side of it too. Um, but the yeah the 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 system actually I quite like. Like I, I think that the. I, I think the way that the Overwatch League works, where it has the the safety net of the the contract every year, plus you have this off season to be able to do some stuff in. I, I think it's it's set up pretty nicely. Um, it, definitely for somebody that's just getting into esports, I never really had to worry about the freelance. I don't know where my next gig is because the Overwatch League is a very structured circuit. You know that there is Overwatch League off season, Overwatch League off season. It's not always oh, there going to be an IEM or an MLG around the corner. We don't know who's the talent for it. We don't know. <laughs> you know, all of those fears I've bypassed completely in my career, um, and now I've got to the point where I've had three years of a safety net. I've set up enough alternate revenue streams that I don't have to worry about that too much in the future. So I would consider myself very lucky to have got onto this pathway of esports instead of the other. Oh, yeah. I think most people were jealous of the setup of Overwatch League. I mean, I can see where it could be a little bit of a double-edged sword, the idea that, like, yeah, there isn't much room to, to play around with other options should you, you know, for whatever reason, start to fear that that yeah. next year is not going to get you a contract. But overall, especially once you've built that brand and you've, I think, cemented yourself in the community, uh, like you you have done or like, a, you know, Uber or Mr. X has done, like, it's not really the fear of losing that contract as much as it is maybe just a desire to try other things could be limited because Overwatch yeah. League does have a, a lot of uh, things to ask, but I'm glad to hear that they're compensating you correctly for it. Um, that's uh, I'd say definitely a, a worry, I suppose, um, as, as always, is like, when where is the esports 
who who was pushing it more to uh what we you know we always talk about or some of us talk about is like man what if we could push it to the you know the nfl commentators the basketball commentators <laughs> that type of cash rolling in um you know yeah i mean anyway. i don't know about that but it's it's not bad <laughs> yeah it's not bad yeah but in the, on the flip side though is like who is who is regressing who is sure. like not ever pushing it and never asking for anything more that's that's good to hear so i really like you're talking about with the um the brand and just like the maybe tinier things that you can do instead of just completely jumping onto a second esport, pushing that YouTube, pushing some shows, pushing that Twitch channel, all fantastic stuff. And I know that you've been particularly good at it. Um, following some of your adventures, you know, the, uh, the plat chat and all that. Yes, it's very yeah. fun to watch. And uh, I was even, I interviewed Uber a couple of weeks ago and he even mentioned you in the uh, podcast where he was like, you know, there's, there's ways here that you can push your branding and, and what the community, you know, use you as and uh he he said that you guys you and brandon did a fantastic job of 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 doing these kind of silly things you know and these extreme things sometimes that that have really pushed your brand so that you're you very quickly went from like a oh i don't know them as a commentator duo because that changed this year for the guys that yeah seeing this podcast to okay well we got to have them back next year um they did a fantastic job so you know for example again guys out there you don't know shaving your uh, eyebrows off <laughs> like that yes. that was pretty yeah, extreme yeah, yeah but everyone extreme. knows you did it and uh you were you were on the, the talk of the subreddits and uh everyone was making jokes at your expense but you know that that just meant that your name was being talked more about than anyone else so yeah i, I mean uh, i don't want to say it was a purely cynical thing that i did <laughs> in order for the clout i did i think it came from pocket coming into my channel and saying but Puckett's an absolute troll. He'll keep popping up in my Twitch channel while I'm streaming. I was just streaming a random Overwatch game. In fact, I remember it was on Hanamura. And he comes into my channel and he says, how much, I don't know where he got this idea from, but he said, how many subs would it take for you to shave off your eyebrow? And I, I really thought it was just a hypothetical. But because me and, so there's, there is a bit of context to this as well. It wasn't just totally random. We, <laughs> when I was in college, we would play a game called eyebrow where if you make a claim like for example we would do it whilst playing fifa a lot but it extended throughout the the whole of the rest of our lives together where me and my college friends if you made a claim like uh oh mate i'm gonna beat you i'm gonna beat you easily in fifa Uh, or this next game five nil watch this something like that where you're claiming that you will do something if the other person says eyebrow if you fail to live up to that claim you get a slit shaven out of your eyebrow so we we played this game also in contenders because I thought it was just a, a bit of banter. So we played it in contenders as well and had uh obviously everyone's working on broadcast so they can't shave their eyebrows while on broadcast, <laughs> but we saved them up until the end of contenders. This was the end of 2017. Like I I don't know where I don't know where I got the blind confidence to just suggest that these esports veterans should start shaving <laughs> their body for me. But I I um yeah, I I we were playing this game and um at the end of it, we went to a bar and we got out a bunch of waxing strips and we were just like, instead of taking slices out of eyebrows, we were just waxing people's uh, big strips of people's legs for each one that they had claimed throughout the season. And so I think this idea had then inspired this, this, um, this bet in Puckett's mind where he came into my Twitch chat and said, how much, how many subs would it take for you to shave off your eyebrows? And I thought it was just a hypothetical. 
So I said a number that I believed was ludicrous. Like, I think I was sat at something like 800 subs, something like that, maybe even lower. And I said, oh, 2,000. Because I'd, I'd never been close to 1,000 subs while streaming on YouTube, uh, while streaming on Twitch, sorry. And so I was like, oh, 2,000 subs. And for some reason, that kind of claim stuck in the brain of everyone in my Twitch chat. And they just went and exploded with it. Like, the, these... Sometimes these silly ideas just take hold. And that one just took a life of its own. And so people just exploded with it. I, and at, at some point I was like, whoa, this is going to make me a lot of money. And then I was like, like oh, fuck, <laughs> this is actually going to have four months where I have literally zero eyebrows. I'll tell you what, it was not worth it. I would never do it again. <laughs> it was absolutely not worth it. You, you look alien without eyebrows. <laughs> you do, yeah. I was trying to do this on like the math in my head. I guess you didn't. <laughs> but I was like... Let's say you get like 1,500 subs to reach that goal. I mean, that's like $3,000, $4,000. Yeah, it's really not much. It's like, it's not enough. <laughs> it's not that much. Yeah, exactly. It's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I get the same thing, you know, like uh, one of the co-casters I have, Fear Dragon, bets me to do like these terrible, stupid things. And I just, I'm, I'm like 5,000 subs is usually yeah, my answer. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, that now, might be enough money. Yeah, yeah. 7 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. what I'm going to go for next time. I mean, if you're going to get paid, get paid. Don't right. don't do it for a poultry amount. <laughs> but it also suck out for the community, right? Um, but that yes. was, you know, on top of you doing a lot of other things, being involved in a lot of shows, um, being very uh out there basically. You know, you would you would do uh you would stream and then talk about like an Overwatch match that was happening or just happened, you know, a side along uh stream. Yes, yeah, I did yeah. the companion streams. Yeah, exactly, but th- yeah. But also that one came out of necessity as well. But well, kind of. Because I got stuck in a visa situation in uh, t- the beginning of 2019 where I wasn't able to return back to LA because there was like some claim for additional information on my visa application. And so it took longer than expected. And I ended up being stuck in the UK until I think it was like March. I think it was like 19th of March or something. I go back into LA. And the, bro- the, um, the Overwatch League, generally speaking, in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 began in, I think it's like early February. It might even be late January. So I missed an entire month of the broadcast, basically. Um, I missed the whole first stage, the whole first quarter of the year. And so I was just trying to think, like, what should I do in the meantime? I mean, I'm going to be watching the games anyway, because I have to watch the games. That's my job, is to know about the games. I can't just take a quarter of the year off, because then I have to catch up on it all when I go to LA. So when, when I kind of was walking down that path mentally, I thought about something that the CS commentators had done in the past where they had done a companion stream, a co-stream for one of the events. So the, the people that hadn't been signed had actually flown out. The people that hadn't been signed, I think, for, for a major, had instead flown out to a studio in Sweden, I think it was, and they had done a live broadcast from there where it was just a bunch of people bantering about the match that was happening. And it was a much more casual, chill environment that combined some comedy stuff with some actual analysis that you that is either too dry or too specific to get into when you're live broadcasting a game. You have to keep up with the flow of a game when you're doing the casting. Um, And the desk only has a very small amount of time to talk about it. But if you're doing a companion stream, a co-stream at the same time, you can pick out a cool moment from a round and you can talk about that throughout the next two rounds. Because you don't really give a shit. Like if someone cares about those next two rounds, they can tune into the main broadcast if they want. I'm going on a tangent here. (laughs) You can be a bit more self-indulgent in that sense. Um, So I really liked that idea. The CS guys had said that it never really worked out feasibly to do a live broadcast. The money just didn't add up. 
and the TOs weren't willing to support it. Uh, but I thought it was a cool idea, and uh, I wasn't even aware that people like Joe Rogan do them for uh, the fight nights and stuff like that. I just thought, oh, this is a cool idea that the CS guys have uh, have tried out. Maybe I should try that. And it ended up popping off. It was a really popular thing in Overwatch as well. Um, and now it's, yeah, it's it's actually mega common across all the scenes now too. There's a bunch of people doing it in Valorant. It was a massive thing in Fortnite as well. Um, uh, pretty much the exact same year that I started it, a bunch of people were, you know, big content creators were doing a similar thing in over in Fortnite too. Um, and yeah, various different regions have, uh, and various different games have all um, taken this idea as an alternate way of, of broadcasting. Yeah, well, it worked out very well, as you said. I mean, a lot of these things kind of just sound like you thought it was a, a fun idea, a good idea, and you just did it, um, which actually yeah. is a, a major problem for a lot of people, my, my, myself included, to be honest. But, you know, we start talking about, like, uh, again, going back to the very first conversation of this podcast, it was like, just do something, just do whatever, just do it. Um, it, it usually like people want to hype it up. They want to get validation on uh, something's a good idea. So we see those tweets, the people that clearly are going to say, yes, it's a good idea. Cause you're sure, yeah, yeah. follow you. And, um, you know, you, you really should just like do stuff. Yeah. And then I, if it pops off, great. If it doesn't, then you try something else. That's the thing. You have to throw ideas out there into the world to see which ones pop. So like from, from the stuff that I've done the we had a number of shows that we started. So plat chat, we started, which is this, um, Overwatch podcast that discusses a bunch of stuff that are happening that's happening in Overwatch and then specifically uh, competitive Overwatch in the Overwatch League too. We that was mega popular, but it took a while over time. But we knew it was going to be popular, so we just stuck with it and then launched uh, the Valorant version of it recently as well, which I hope is also going to be popular. I think it is. That I've got uh, a bunch of like the the players are fans of it, which is how you know that you're producing pretty decent content as well if the players themselves are enjoying watching. You know, it's not just platitudes and and uh, nonsense. Um, but then also we had the Foreheads podcast, which was a pet project of ours, which was a more like comedy um, general podcast. The The problem is it never really had a vision and we haven't done one in, in weeks at this point because I think it, it naturally tapered off a little bit. Like we realized it wasn't going anywhere huge and so it was one of those ideas that we threw into the void. We worked on it for months, and now we've realized that it it doesn't really have the best future in the world. It's not. A, I'm not saying that it's done forever, but it's not a priority for us compared to other content that we're working on. And that isn't something that we've ever vocalized. We just all realized simultaneously this isn't a priority, and we've kind of tapered it off over time. We have another um, D&D show called Casters and Castles that never really popped off in the same kind of way either. But we're kind of low-key running it at the same time, and it's got a couple of different people, different opportunities as well within that um, tabletop RNG, uh, RPG kind of sphere too. So it's about it's about just doing stuff and seeing what works and then not co- not committing yourself to projects if they're not performing to go back and reevaluate like, okay, why did this work? Why didn't this work? What can I do to change the direction of it and ensure that it works in, in the future too? A quote that I always think of when it comes to this kind of stuff is, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Like, if you're trying to make something perfect, you are you are fucking up something that could be good. Like, you can just put out good content all the time. If you have a good, a good mind for it, and you'll slowly iterate over time to make it better and better. But if you really try and make your first project perfect, you will never do them. You'll actually yeah. just never get around to doing them. And if you do get around to doing them, they'll have taken up so much of your time that you've 
that if it fails, you'll feel like it's a complete disaster. And you could have been working on three different projects that were all good in the meantime that you could slowly iterate on and allocate time based on their success. And trying to make perfect things is is nonsense, especially in a sphere like esports where the standards are so low. The standards for content in esports and gaming are just on the floor. <laughs> they genuinely are. Like some of the broadcasts that I see terrible production quality terrible all sorts of stuff still got people watching some of the streams that you watch like the biggest streamers have the worst production quality and and yet all the streamers trying to come up are focused on like what their overlay looks like and making sure they have the perfect announcements that pop up on screen like the people focus on the details and it's not about the details it's about the the big picture about the entertainment yeah. about the the stuff that actually draws people in yeah it's also kind of like the busy work aspect um there's a guy I follow on YouTube who's like, he, he does all like the correct YouTube things. So people might think he's a bit of a, um, you know, sellout or whatever it is. Right. But mm-hmm. um, he actually had some, some pretty good, you know, things to say about this. And, um, oh shoot. What, what was it? I've lost, I've lost it. I had two quotes in mind and I, I lost the first one I you had. You said busy work. Was it related? Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Busy work. And that people like will put in eight hours of streaming and they'll be like, I, I work really hard because I do that. And then, uh, they won't improve at all, right? Because mm. basically they do these things that are supposed to net them gains because that's the general advice. But actually it is just like, it, it is a, a type of working hard, but it's not working very smart. So you go around saying, I'm a hard worker, I'm a hard worker. And it's like, well, what does that like, amount to? And it's like, oh, well, I can say I'm a hard worker. And it's like, well, that's great, but maybe you should have been looking at different avenues. Um, and, and starting up projects and refreshing projects is, is all part of of doing it kind of, a, I think, in a smarter way. And the other thing I wanted to say is like, that was a very good quote from you. But then there's also the quote that, um, what is it? Like anything worth doing is worth doing right is a very old fashioned quote. But someone recently uh, dared to uh, say that that was quite incorrect. Anything worth doing is worth doing is actually like, that is the quote. Like you don't have to do it super right. You can do it wrong and be like, okay with it and learn from it, which has been really difficult. Um, especially I think as the content, like it's, it's funny, there is a lot of content, like you're absolutely right. Like some of the big streamers have the worst mics and no camera and no overlay. And uh, obviously that happens, but there is still a lot of content that people look at and they get all, you know, starry eyed and they they look at like their favorite guys, their favorite productions and it it looks so crisp. So they're like, I gotta have something that, that compared to that. And it's, um, it's not, it's not usually the case, but of course, you know, showing that you're putting in work to it can, can be good. Yeah. It's a different. It's a difficult balancing act. Um, it is. It is. But I think what it comes down to as well is just you need you need a starting place. Like yeah. the, you, the the um the quote that you said about if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Is great if it applies to like mending a hole in a roof, like you know <laughs> something that where you're doing it and it's a one time job and it's got to be done well. But when it comes to creating video content or casting or something like that, you're not you're not putting you're not creating one piece of work to be treasured forever no one does that with any video content that they put out anywhere uh, aside of like very specific youtube channels that are trying to put out one piece a month that's beautiful that is not generally how people are starting that's not generally how people are making content it's not one piece of work that you put on a mantelpiece it is a series of work that you are putting out into the world, which means it's an iterative process, which means you need a starting point and you need to iterate and get better and better and better as it goes, which means that starting point doesn't have to be good at all. It can just be good enough to get you the experience to to keep improving on it afterwards. Um, it's less a hole in a roof and, and more of a, 
it's a series of videos. <laughs> yeah, well, it it's I mean, it's soft skills, right? Like things that yeah. don't really have like a start point and end point is just like something that you build off of, which they can bring it back to casting. Like that's just kind of like a whole idea of just, like, just getting started. Uh, you know, body in motion stays in motion. Same for like yeah. a mind in motion. Um, just just doing it. You know, it but it, it is hard when you, especially uh, you know, to to, to relate it to transferring over to other esports here. So. You know, if I was, you know, I want to cast other esports because I want to give it to go. I want to have some fun. But my initial barrier has always been like, well, I'm I've made it this far in StarCraft Two. I mean, am I, I like if I, I can't go one to one to this other game and just suddenly be like the top tier caster over there because it's just you know I, I'm not going to be able to do it. But that expectation is very hard for me to you know admit. So sure. I, I got to go back to to what it was years and years ago where you just cast something for fun on your YouTube and if it was fun keep doing it if it eventually gets a couple of you know people saying that it's actually pretty decent maybe look into it maybe not but it's uh that that is where I think you have to get started and for you you say that you know as you look into to Valorant you are putting in tons of work uh, you know it's it's going to be a very difficult scene to break into since it has so much of that background of, of being supported by Riot and, and modeling yeah. the most popular esport and uh do you have that certain expectation for yourself and, and you're putting in a lot of the uh the back end the the work that's not seen or are you also kind of approaching this as something that like if it works out it works out or or is this actually something where you've written out your plan you have like a yeah i mean I, process i haven't really written it out but i have i have the same mental plan that i had when i was coming into overwatch which is essentially it's a brand new game i know that it maintains a lot of the similarities to csgo but the way that the game is um approach strategically in terms of the the abilities that uh it changes the game to a level where you can't just be a cs expert and come in and understand everything about valorant the game's different the maps are different the abilities change the game fundamentally um and so you you're on a level playing field with most people when the game is released it's a race to get good and if you're willing to put in the additional time, you can get good faster than everybody else can get good. That's the same that happened with Overwatch in 2016 as well. Um, and so that's one of the situations where um, I do put the expectations on myself to, to be good at it. Because if I'm, if I'm not better than almost everybody else that's doing it, I am either not thinking about it properly or I'm not putting in the work properly. Like those are the those are the only two explanations for why I wouldn't be able to do it because there's no I, I don't really believe that like having a CS background is a big enough advantage that I wouldn't be able to overwork it by just putting in the hours. So the um my my thought process coming into Valorant is basically that if I watch all of the games and study all of the footage and do that simultaneously with Overwatch, which it's in the off season at the moment, so there isn't that much footage to actually um, be be watching at the moment. Then there's no reason why I couldn't be the same level that I am in Overwatch uh, in in Valorant immediately. Um, so that's that's kind of been my driving factor for doing a lot of Valorant work recently. Is the idea that every time a new title is released, one that is fundamentally different to other titles, you know if when Overwatch 2 releases, presumably it's going to be pretty similar to Overwatch. And so you would expect the people that are at the top level in Overwatch in terms of players and casters and stuff like that are going to have an easier transition than someone who came from Counter-Strike, for example. But 
Valorant is fundamentally different enough that it prevent uh, it creates a fairly level playing field to to go for, which was the benefit of getting in early in Overwatch as well. And that's that's what I also recommend to people who are trying to get into an esport at the beginning too, is to try and ride that wave at the beginning. Because <clears throat> if you're trying to play catch up to everybody else, like if someone tries to come in now to Valorant, they have to catch up to like the what six months of vods that I've already been watching and like the knowledge that I've already been accruing. And the same for everybody else. Like, if you're trying to catch up to being a player, you have to catch up to all of those players that have spent six months playing the game and learning the game and learning how different abilities interact and developing their protocols and all sorts of different stuff. So the the catch-up game is always more difficult. Uh, but if you get in on the ground floor and you're playing that race with everybody else, the race to get good, the race to uh, to to learn, then you can at least remain competitive, if not stay ahead of everyone else and, and try and... Uh, Try and maintain that position. It's always easier to maintain than to play catch up afterwards. I mean, it still sounds quite stressful because a lot of these times, I mean, you did have the, the the opportunity with Overwatch League to come in alongside a lot of guys coming in from different esports that had already built a brand, and it worked out fantastic. But it is quite stressful when you when you go into any new esport. And it turns out that uh, you know Golden Boy and um, Rivington the Third and and whoever else is doing the recent Valorant you know, is doing Valorant that like, you know, even though the, you know, Rivington is a League of Legends caster, I mean, <laughs> he came into Valorant and did a decent enough job, but, you know, they actually hired him. I mean, does that ever, does it ever feel like it's out of your control? Cause, cause right now what it sounds like is you actually have a very, a very good drive. You're like psychology, psychologically well set up to do this, which is that if I have, if I do everything that I have set out to do, I am in control of my own destiny, but it can yeah. be a little difficult for people, especially those who don't have any clout in any esport. They are really coming from nothing uh, to look at all these humongously big names and be like, I can beat that guy. Instead of saying, well, I might not beat him now, but maybe he'll move on to something else later and yeah. then I can come up. Yeah. And and if you remember back to what I was saying about Overwatch, I wasn't expecting to get into the first wave of Overwatch, even though I had the same mentality. So I had the same mentality of, I'm going to try and outgrind everyone. I'm really going to try and work and, and develop all of my knowledge about all of the players and how the game works, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I still wasn't expecting to actually get in on, on the ground floor. Um, I was just trying to continue that over time to get some kind of position, whatever that position might be, um, that, that would be sustainable for me for the future. So. Um, it, and I've talked to a bunch of the upcoming casters in Valorant as well. I've been doing a lot of Valorant VOD reviews at the moment because currently I'm in an exclusive contract for the Overwatch League, so I can't work Valorant even if, even if I was offered gigs. I, I literally can't. So I find that that puts me in a pretty good position to give these upcoming casters tips because they know that I'm not trying to fuck them over. I'm not trying to steal <laughs> their gigs. I can, I can actually, you know, try and elevate the level of casting because I'm just coming at it from a viewer. Like, I'm watching these tournaments. I want the casters to get better so that it increases my enjoyment of watching the tournaments. So I've, d I've done a lot of talk with them as well. And something that I spoke to the most recent one about is that a very, very small percentage of them will actually make it. And they have to be aware of that fact, aware that there's a lot of luck involved in that, of being in the right place at the right time as well. But you can't change the luck aspect. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. But what you can do is you can maximize your chances massively of actually being the first choice out of those tier two people if one of them does get selected for you know say say league of Re legends went franchised <clears throat> instead of giving the um giving the power to tournament organizers to select talent because at the moment for next year the tournament organizers are selecting different pieces of talent 
for for the for the Valorant Champions Tour. But say it went franchise and Riot got to pick everybody, you want to you want to work yourself up to the as high on the list as possible so that there's a higher chance of you actually being selected. So that is as much as is possible for it to be in for it to be in your control, you should try and maximize that. Like it's it's kind of the 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 there definitely is a huge amount of of luck and survivorship bias that plays into it here as well, where the people who have made it are going to give you advice on how to make it, even though their advice might not be true. It's like a person who won the lottery ticket telling you to go, oh yeah, go buy lottery tickets. <laughs> but the, some part of the process is manipulable. Like you can actually determine at least a percentage of your fate. Um, and, and so that, that's my point of view is that I want to make that as high as possible. And I've seen it work before. Like, I feel like it would be, especially once you gain some footing to then work off, like you have some level of reputation, you have some previous body of work to, to springboard off of, it becomes easier and easier. So the, from my point of view, I feel pretty confident about being able to get into any future esport that I put my time into. Um, but for people who are coming up from the ground floor, I think the best thing that you could do is put as much effort in as you can to increase your likelihood as much as possible and realize that it is a long-term grind and be open to as many different avenues of work as possible too. Because like I said, when I was getting into Overwatch, I was down to do anything. I was doing journalism, article writing. Um, I wasn't doing events management, but that's something that I'd done in TF2 before. Um, casting, analyzing, uh, uh, a bunch of different stuff. I would have gone into a bunch of behind-the-scenes job in Overwatch League as well if I hadn't been offered the on-camera uh, position. So I, I think just being open to, like, attempting to influence your destiny as much as possible, but then being open to the opportunities that present themselves and not kind of locking yourself into into one of them um, is is the best way of approaching that kind of thing. Absolutely. It's just hard to tell yourself that every day, right? Um, to, to approach it from that angle. Yeah. And some people aren't financially able to do that either. Yeah. Like, like some people don't have the um, privilege that I did of being able to live with my family when I was earning like 5,000 quid a year working, <laughs> uh, writing articles in, in Overwatch with them telling me constantly, have you been applying for jobs recently? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. I'm <laughs> definitely applying for jobs, mom. Definitely applying for jobs. Uh, meanwhile, writing another article about a roster move that's been happening in Overwatch. How, how are you paying the rent that we're asking you for? Oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I've got some side <laughs> revenue streams. Definitely still applying for jobs though. So yeah, it's like the the timing aspect of it was very fortuitous for me in that I was able to sustain myself financially during that period of time. Um, but I think if you're just trying to do one eSport, if you're really just trying to make it in one eSport, that is possible with most uh, full-time jobs that you would be able to do. Like, as long as you don't have a massive amount of other things that you're also very much into, like some major sports hobby or major something else family. that takes up a lot of your time yeah family or a social life <laughs> for sure but if you're if you're really like the 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 job aspect of it you can do that at the same time there have been players and coaches and other things that have been able to juggle both but obviously there are sacrifices when um when stuff like that occurs yeah for sure it is difficult i was in the same boat towards the beginning of uh, starcraft 2 i was just i was working i wasn't working rather i was a kid uh college and then 
staying at home. So it, it was really fortuitous. So were you going out to like meeting up with people who were clearly going to be involved in the Overwatch League or you were getting reaching out to people who were involved with Blizzard to kind of offer up your services? Or were you really, was this all just like word of mouth? Yeah, it was all just word of mouth. I, I, I don't know how one would even get in touch with a developer to say that you want to work their game. I, is there an email that you would go to? <laughs> I don't know how that would even happen. Like, as far as I'm aware, the selection processes for these kind of things tend to be recommendations from either the people that are running the esports side of the... So the developer kind of hires somebody that's in charge of their esports department. They have a talent uh, manager who is either aware of people in the scene and and asks uh, you if you're interested, or they'll ask the other talent that they already know, who would you recommend? Um, or they'll spot your name in terms of a YouTube video that you've made will pop off on Reddit or something. Or, you know, there's normally a way that you get noticed and it's them approaching you. At least that's how it always has been with me um, throughout everything that I've done. So I don't even know whether there is another way of doing it, but <laughs> that's um, that's how I've done it. Yeah, I don't know about reaching out to someone like, you know, you wouldn't know who the talent manager is. You know, I, I doubt yeah. it anyways. But as far as reaching out to people that, you know, are getting involved with something. So, for instance, for something like Valorant, if you knew that, uh, you know, Golden Boy was was mm. going to be reached out to perhaps being like, obviously, you can't just be like, hey, I heard you're doing this thing. Give me a job. But you could be like, hey, you're getting into Valorant. Like, I'm getting into Valorant. You know, best of luck. Um, you know, I hope to see you in the future event. Right. Something like that. Just to just to have your name out there. Sure. Um, people have said, said, told me that they've, they've made, um, you know, efforts to make sure that they are on the minds of the people working in event, um, for the future. And then we get into yeah. a talk about the balancing act of you know, being the guy who's clearly looking for a job just to, to pay the bills and a guy who's actually yeah. being cool and just looking for opportunities. It's yeah. I've never, tight. I've never done that particularly. And I think I would personally, I don't think that's a bad thing to do, but I would personally feel uncomfortable doing that. Because I'm British and my emotions are very <laughs> repressed, and so i i feel I feel rude infringing on people in that kind of way because I feel like it would be very transparent what I was attempting to do. So instead, I my my approach with it has always been I will be on the minds of the people selecting it through the work that I produce. Like if I if I'm out here streaming constantly and doing interviews with players, and then the players know that I'm doing content, or we have Platchat Valorant that we're doing, or you know stuff like that through the work they will understand that i am interested in the scene when it comes to overwatch or valorant same stuff that i did at the beginning of overwatch i was writing articles about the players i was doing interviews with all the players a bunch of the players were from tf2 as well so they knew that i was interested in the scene um i flew out to some of the events um in order to do live interviews for some of the uh some of the very first lan events that were happening in overwatch and so I did some interviews with the players, but also the casters as well. And so they knew that I was interested in doing that kind of stuff. I built the relationships that way rather than actually directly reaching out and trying to have a subtle conversation with them. That's not <laughs> something I'm very good at. So instead, I, I would rather of course, like, engage yeah. them in work. Yeah, but th that is more so what I think it would happen, right? Like the whole idea of flying out to an event when you could to actually converse with people and, and, and be cool and, and, you know, be known as someone who's not being super needy and super obnoxious and yeah. then actually doing more collaborative work with them. And then, yes. you know, clearly showing that you're going to put in the effort, but also showing like, yes, if you, if you think I did a good job, you know, if you could, you know, suggest me, that'd be great. 
without having to say so super directly. Yeah, obviously, is the best way to do it. Um, so when you talk a lot about the, you know, a lot of this has been about content, which is a fantastic, you know, angle that mm-hmm. hasn't really been approached quite yet on this podcast. That it is really content driven, and then eventually they'll they'll find you and be like, this job fits you according to us, and that's that's great. Yeah. You've managed to show them seven jobs you could do, and they pick you for one. Yeah. Uh, well, how much do you actually think for the, the commentating portion is based off your actual commentary skill, um, your ability to, to talk, basically? Because a lot of what we've been talking about is knowing the players, knowing the scene, mm. knowing the history. And that's all very important for, for story building, which is really the most important thing about commentary. But you also want to be able to, to articulate yes. and inform sentences with words. Uh, how yeah. much of that actually do you think is you know, if you could scale it, if you could weigh it here, percentages, how much is that important? I'm not sure. I, I think it's very difficult to say because the the people that are hiring um the the people that are hiring very often don't know the game particularly well. And they don't I this is a big generalization, but I also think that the majority of the people that hire for esports really don't know commentary that well either. Like it seems like when you look across the sphere in esports, there's a lot of people that um, that don't seem to hire based on who the best people actually are, or they have a weird view of what good commentary actually is. Which I, I'm not. Yeah, it, it's a it's a weird <laughs> comment to make, perhaps. But what I mean by this is that it doesn't necessarily matter if you attain excellence in either sphere. It's more to do with, I think, your um, charisma and how you are perceived on the broadcast as to whether or not people will actually hire you for future broadcasts. For example, to, to take the worst example of this, if you knew everything about every player, but you have no level of charisma or personality whatsoever when it comes to being on camera, you can't make eye contact with the camera. You're really shy, and you're just kind of mumbling out all of your words. The content of what you're speaking is is still excellent. Like if you presented that in a in a very personable way, you would be a fantastic commentator. But by missing out on all of the on camera skills, you are never going to get picked up. Never, because those are the most obvious things to be able to tell in another person. If you have no idea about the game, if you're just some suit that's been hired to hire other people. You're immediately going to know, well, that guy doesn't work on camera. Holy moly, don't <laughs> hire him again. But on the, on the flip side of that, if you have a lot of charisma, but you know nothing about the game and you're just pure bullshitting, a lot of that will go over people's head. Like a lot of that, you won't even, they won't even realize. And so you've got this weird, um, weird system where you absolutely need the charisma and the on-camera abilities to be able to ever get hired for an event because otherwise people will just literally strike your name off the list. But in order to actually progress up the list and have longevity within the eSport, you need to focus on the the knowledge and the skills uh, and the commentary skills and the craft side of it in order to actually get better and continue to get events. But that 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 foot in the door, it, the, door the door will get slammed in your face if you do not have the necessary skills to even make a good first impression on the broadcast, which, I mean... Th- Again, another little piece of luck there as well. TF2 was so tiny that when I had none of that charisma skill and talent on broadcast, I, I think my first cast ever, like I was so nervous casting to like 400 people that my teeth were chattering. 
And like, I don't know how that came across. I, I sounded terrible. So like, it sounded like I had absolutely no on-camera uh, charisma. But because it was so small, I was able to iterate on that and continue to get uh, work later on. So if you don't have that necessary skill to be able to do the the work at the beginning, that's 100% what you need to focus on in order to actually get good at it. And the other stuff can come later because that that is that's the kind of stuff that you can't um, you can't get away with. Um, you can't kind of bullshit your way around not being, uh, char- yeah, charismatic. But you, but you can learn it. You absolutely can learn charisma and confidence. Like it's totally a thing that you can learn. Uh, a lot of the stuff that people assume are just base personality traits are definitely learnable if you put in the the time and the effort. Uh, and definitely charisma and on-camera confidence is is definitely one of them. Yeah, there's a lot of stories, especially in esports, when most people are saying that they're nerds, that they were they didn't speak, they didn't do public speaking in school, the you know typical shy thing, and yeah. they're the ones who are now up on stage in front of millions and whatnot. So it's absolutely a learnable skill, but it it is a it's still a soft skill though, and it, it you know it's very difficult to find a teacher for it. There actually are though, you know, I, I feel like I bring this up occasionally. There's there's teachers for on-camera presence uh, that they teach like uh, news anchors you know what to do there's teachers for uh your voice that aren't just about singing yes. you know they actually they teach people when they go up on on a stage to speak and that's pretty much what we're doing even if it's you know slightly different uh they're they're all they're available but you know this goes back to actually being in a, in a good financial state but if that was something that there's was also, truly being a barrier and there's also a lot of voice coaching stuff on youtube as well it's oh, yeah. something that i looked up recently because um i was again i was doing some valorant coaching for some upcoming talent um and one of the people that i was doing some coaching for has um like a, a voice that isn't really suited for for broadcast it's a, a bit too hyponasal or uh, not too hyponasal but it's a it, it's more of that kind of voice and the the way i always feel bad when i talk about this kind of stuff though because i i don't dislike the voice and i don't dislike a bunch of different stuff but the public perception is always what you're battling against whenever you do on-camera stuff. The, you know, comedians call it their persona as well. Like you have to match your material to your persona because otherwise people will not understand what you're putting forwards. Like they, they have a certain prejudice and an expectation of what broadcasters should sound like and what people on camera should look and act like as well. And if you fail to match those expectations or meet them in, in any way, then they will actively not like you as much. And so you're constantly battling against that, which is why I'm talking about like the voice not being suited. It's not because I personally disliked it. But when I, when I said that to him, I said there's a bunch of different voice coaches on, on YouTube that you can um, try and use what they're putting out there. So obviously not going to be quite as good as having a personal voice coach, but it is also free compared to being multiple hundreds of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Uh, all of, a lot of voice acting and voice coaches are going to tell you that there's always like a good voice within everyone. They just like it's a process of finding it. Um, a lot of those voices that are actually very grating, like nat- they're somewhat natural. You know, yeah. it's not the best voice. It's not a voice, you know, the golden voice, sure, but it's also a voice that has been taught, you know, very bad practices. And once they kind of mold it a little bit more, it's, it's actually very doable. Yes. Um, I don't want to name any names, but I think there are people out there in the who are being paid to cast that don't actually have a golden voice. Um, you know, I think we, sure, we, sure. we could easily argue that a lot of people don't. 
actually, when we think of like uh, James Earl Jones, right, as like a golden voice. Sure, like, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I can't think of anyone who has that, but um, but people work with it and uh, eventually get you know start getting complimented on their voice, even when the people, even when someone actually means what, what they are saying is like, I like how you use your voice. I like yeah, the yeah. way you go up and down and short and long phrases and and things like that. So definitely uh, something to look into. So you've you've actually been coaching some of these these guys uh, in Valor, which is very interesting. I know Uber's also been doing some um, like on stream coaching as well. Mm. Um, is this just like a side gig that <laughs> Overwatch League guys are doing, or is it just particularly yeah. too? Well, like I said, I I can't actually work at the moment for for Valorant, and so it's just a cool way of um, contributing to the scene in some way as well, and kind of elevating the tier two level as well um there's a lot of people trying to get into valorant that i see similarities to what i was trying to do when i was working there as well and just providing them with some direction and some advice and um yeah working with them to try and improve my enjoyment of the broadcast as well because at the end of the day i'm going to be watching these guys and listening to these guys too so if i can help them get better it's going to benefit me too because i'm going to enjoy it more afterwards um so yeah that's that's i haven't done a ton of it i've done a couple i think i did um one in overwatch recently and then i did three or four in valorant just because i had some spare time to to work with and i thought it'd be a a cool thing to do and also a lot of the people getting into casting in valorant are brand new casters as well that don't understand the business side of it either so the rate situation was all sorts of fucked up over there too and um yeah yeah it's it's difficult to know your your value and how to get better and how to communicate with tournament organizers and talk to your other casters about important things. You know, the kind of stuff that I've learned over the last three, four years is just what I've tried to pass on because that's what happened to me. That's, you know, I had that kind of mentorship process when I joined the Overwatch League. And so I feel it's only right to pass those kind of things on. And so do you, do, are they reaching out to you or are you DMing them and being like, Hey, do you want feedback? I mean, how is this? working out um i can't remember actually i think <laughs> no i i didn't dm them for feedback uh i didn't dm them to tell them i had feedback i feel like that's kind of uh presumptuous right. um i i i think what did i do i think i tweeted something saying if anyone wants a vod review get in touch something like that and a bunch of people got in touch and then people saw the first one that i did and got in touch for a, another one i think that was basically how it happened yeah i i don't i don't um I don't like reaching out specifically because it feels like you're lecturing people. Yeah. Like if you reach out to someone, if if someone reached out to me and said, hey, I have some advice for your Overwatch casting, I'd be like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> I mean, I'd probably take it if I knew the person and knew right. that they were pretty respected within the scene, but I would still consider it weird that they reached out. So um, yeah, I, I think that's easily, it's easily taken the wrong way and you can right. feel like the person that's trying to, I don't know, puppeteer the scene or something. But if you just put, you know, I was I was open to doing some reviews for people and people go in touch. Yeah, it's, that's why I asked though. I was just like, is he so <laughs> just like blatant as to DM this guy? But uh, that makes a yeah. lot more sense. I do think there's like, I mean, between you and Uber and then some of the other guys, um, if you like YouTube search, like, like caster beginnings or teaching caster or something like that, I feel like there is going to be a market very soon for the commentators, it, well, the on-camera workers, I should say, just in general, mm. um, actually providing coaching for these up-and-coming esports uh, commentators yeah. as well. 
and I mean, it's not always going to be like the, the altruistic thing. It's not always going to be great. I'm sure there's going to be as there is for many things in esports, the the esports um shit, what is it? The, the advisor, what is that position yes. that Slash always makes fun of? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're just like, who is this guy? Like what? <laughs> and they're gonna be making money off it, I'm sure. But I do think it's gonna be an avenue, especially for people who are doing freelance stuff. Um, you know, a hundred percent if some of these guys uh, you know, said like I'll fifty bucks and I'll and spend an hour with you i'd i jump on it as well which i'm i'm kind of low-key doing with this podcast i'm secretly just gathering all the all <laughs> exactly. the information getting all the advice and just keeping it all to myself no well, that's um, the other thing as well people are so willing to give that stuff away for free that there isn't going to be a market for it because you can't <laughs> you can't possibly price yourself at like 50 bucks when everyone's giving it away for, for free <laughs> <laughs> i mean it'll happen eventually there's a ton of free coaching in every esport as well but of course there's also a ton of paid coaches so I, I think it's going to happen. I'm just, it's my predic- or, uh, my prediction for 2022. I'm yeah. I think that's quite happen. likely too. I, I, the Overwatch League actually has been really good in that um, they, they tried very early on to get talent coaches and voice coaches and stuff like that for people who wanted them. And so I did some voice coaching early on in 2018, I think. Maybe that was 2019. The, the years have blurred together at this point. Um, but I did... Mo- multiple months of voice coaching and then also worked with a um not a talent manager but a, a an on-camera coach who was talking about kind of uh voice and how you present yourself on broadcast and this kind of stuff the, unfortunately though those kind of people are very difficult to find and so right. after the first talent coach that the Overwatch League got he went to a different role a different job and they never were able to find anybody who was as good again um, because they are so specific and so niche. And the people that have actually worked at that level in terms of the uh, production and working with enough high-level talent to be able to understand how that all operates, generally speaking, have better jobs than just coaching other talent. Like The system isn't developed enough for that to be uh, a thing. There isn't enough money in the scene to be able to support it at the moment. But definitely as things grow and as few, uh, as current talent evolves into being other stuff, like the CS people going into general manager or coaching and then uh, a bunch of other talent within the scene maybe moving into other roles, um, I-, I think those are d- absolutely options that would benefit um, up-and-comers. I mean, I think they are starting to to appear, uh, not those specific coaches, but just in general, these like these ideas that, you know, are common complaints like um talking to Gillyweed about her role in psionics um for, for, for Rocket League. And, and I was like, Yeah, it's really obnoxious because you try and like there's a very big disconnect between the guys who are working on this league and the talent that appear, right? Basically, we're the last ones hired, we're you know, we don't really get to involved with the production. We just kinda show up and go like, Oh, they definitely missed this, this and this and and she was kind of saying that she had a job that actually kind of fit that as a as a liaison slash talent manager slash mm. player slash you know kind of everything that I was like oh man that actually makes so much sense I'm I'm so glad someone is is trying to make to fill these roles yeah. that are missing um, and I, I loved you know hearing about the that Overwatch did provide uh, you know options as well as apparently League of Legends um, Riot has done as well which right. yeah I, I'm have to try and get some one of them on and speak about it but that that's awesome stuff um is there anything is there any like big bullet points you know it's a couple things that you would say you learned and that stuck with you the most from these lessons um the i think 
so I did way more voice coaching than I did the the other talent coaching because, like I said, the 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 guy that was excellent at it ended up disappearing and he went to a different job. Um, so from the the voice coaching side, um, a lot of it was just breathing control. I think uh, th- that was something that I was missing when I was on the desk. I felt like the a, a lot of the segments on the desk are. Here's a great idea. Compress it into 30 seconds of articulate speech and deliver it effectively. And also, it was a lot of like on the fly talking as well. So Puckett would shoot me a question and I would try and answer it, you know, talking about the game or talking about who I think has an advantage in a certain fight or a certain meta or whatever. And what I was finding was that when I was on the broadcast, a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, but occasionally, I would find myself talking and talking and I was trying to explain a point and I was trying to do it with a lot of energy as well because I'm on broadcast and then I get to the end of my breath and I'm like, oh, for shit, now I've run out of breath. <laughs> and, and so that working on that and finding natural pause points and working on breathing, being more conscious and, uh, and effective, which again is not something that anyone ever thinks about, but breathing is literally just moving parts of your muscles in order to suck air into your lungs. And so depending on which muscles you move, can affect how your breathing occurs. People think of it, again, as an incredibly natural thing that you can't really uh, coach or change, much like personality traits, but you totally can. Um, so that was a big thing that I personally worked on. Um, and then for the talent coaching, a lot of it was in combination with the production. It was a lot of stuff that we worked on in early on in the Overwatch League in terms of finding our voice on the broadcast and being able to set up a system where the assets that we were using were complementing what we were saying and weren't completely driving the broadcast instead of us. So it was a lot of the interconnection between us and production was kind of getting sorted out uh, through this this talent talent coaching mediation. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, it, the Overwatch League, I think, had a really... I mean, being artificial, I know it sounds like it's a bad word, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it anyways. Like it was built up. It wasn't one of those things that started from like something in someone's house to something in a studio to yeah. something in a bigger studio. It was just kind of weird. Um, I think it was really difficult to to know exactly what type of balance they wanted between being, you know, like NFL except for, for esports or if it wanted to kind of go along more so with the homegrown people having fun aspect and, and finding that balance. Um, I actually think it was was actually quite due to a lot of the talent that you guys have on the desk and as commentators, because one, Overwatch is a super difficult game to cast. I tried it twice, <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? Um, yeah. And then uh, two, just to have that much pressure, because all the eyes are on Overwatch League as yeah. well for what it's doing, and I think you guys have done a, a fa- fabulous job. I've listened to other esports, honestly, and uh, a couple of them that are pretty big with some very established casters, and I'm just like, I don't like I don't like that type of casting. Like, I don't actually, I don't like this esport. Like, what's going on here? But then I'll listen to you guys in the Overwatch League or or to CS:GO casters, and I'll be like, no, no. Like, I'm I I actually think there is just like a better quality of uh, of commentating uh, compared to some other esports that I I won't name <laughs> just so I don't yeah. anger anyone. I may have on the podcast in the future, but anyways, um, yeah, great great stuff you guys are doing over the Overwatch League, and I definitely hope to see you in in other esports. You know, whenever you can do it. But uh, we're going to wrap up the podcast here hey, for 90 minutes. I don't want to keep it for too much longer. But I do have a Patreon question sure. from one of my supporters. So he says, 
Do you think esports will be able to attract people who aren't a fan of the given game or at least familiar with mechanics? If so, are certain esports better made for this than others? Yeah, that's it's a really interesting question. It's something actually that the Overwatch League grappled with as well, is the the core of this question. Um, because the Overwatch League was started, like you said, with really big ambitions about being the, you know, like the kind of NFL of uh of gaming where you're moving around from place to place, trying to play as many games as possible and ver- visit various cities and everyone's got local representation, et cetera, et cetera. But it, the, the kind of one of the core issues with that idea of esports is that unless you're familiar with the game, at least in a sense that you've casually played it and you understand what all the heroes do, you're not going to get how it works. It's not the same as the NFL, for example, because in the NFL, if I watch the NFL, I am a human. I have interacted with a ball before. I understand the physics of humans and balls. I, I get it, right? Like if someone if someone did a double backflip on the field, I'd, my mind would be blown because I understand as a human how hard that is to do. I already have all of that experience to be able to understand what I'm witnessing. That applies to every traditional sport. Uh, every stick and ball sport you you just fundamentally know as a person what it's like to be a person you you might you might witness people doing stuff that you've never seen before and you might not quite understand how much athleticism goes into something but you can appreciate that they are doing some wild shit but when it comes to esports if you haven't played the game you don't understand the limitations of all the characters you don't understand the universe that they're in in terms of like how much health everything has how much damage everything does do the does fall damage exist? Does spam damage? Are you accurate when you're moving or not? What, you know, all of these different rules are different between different games and you have no, no intuitive experience that you can rely on unless you're very familiar with the, the game that you're watching or it's really similar to one that you're currently involved with. Um, so I think that was something that a lot of esports have really run in, into troubles with. Now, I think it, it doesn't matter that much though for a couple of reasons. One, the player base of most of these games is enormous. So if you're able to translate even a small percentage of the player base of the games, like I think Overwatch Overwatch just put out a, a thing recently that it had like, God, I, I might mess this up, but I think it had, how many million monthly users, monthly active users did it have recently? I'm just going to quickly uh, Google that because I know that it was pretty big. It was 10 million, yeah. 10 million monthly active users, which is pretty good. Um, for for a game like Overwatch. Now, Overwatch also, if you were able to attract, I don't know, one one percent of that. Uh, if you took the the ten million, and you you tried to attract ten percent of those viewers to tune in every time to your game, well, you've already got a hundred thousand people there that are gonna tune in on a monthly basis to your broadcast. You don't need to go way outside of the game in order to attract that target audience. But if you want to, then you need games that are mega simple to understand, I think. Games like Rocket League is a great one because it's a ball. And if you hit the ball, you know what ball physics are. It also shares a lot of similarities to football, like as in soccer football. So people understand ball goes in net equals point. They're very familiar with that concept of of how traditional sports work. Or things like, like CS is like when you're getting to... 
this is a pretty hardcore video game, but it does have some appeal, even if you don't know the game that well, because you can explain to your grandpa who's never watched esports before, oh, you're watching from the first person view of a guy and it's going to flop, flip from guy to guy. If they shoot the other people in the head, they're going to they're gonna get the kills and win the round. Like it's, it's pretty simple to explain the basics, and then there's a lot of depth that you can explore afterwards. Um, so those kind of games, I mean, even though when you stretch that to Valorant, I think you're starting to push it at that point. Because even though it might have more casual appealing in terms of being a bit prettier and having a bunch of different characters and stuff like that, actually understanding what each person does like one of them can one of them can res people the other has a turret that they can put down like if you're a casual viewer and you're trying to get into the game you're really going to only focus on the gunplay so even if you make those slight adjustments in terms of complexity it's already getting pretty difficult to understand if you're trying to explain it to like your grandpa or your grandma that isn't familiar with with esports at all so i don't really think that i don't think that there is going to be a game that pops in the mainstream that much but also i don't think that that's a problem at all like the the way to pop off as an esport is to translate your players into viewers because there are millions of players of video games there are billions of players of video games if we're being real about it but for any specific game there are millions and if you are able to get a fraction of those and convert them into viewers you have an incredibly sustainable esport to go and work with so I think that's the thing that all developers should be focused on at all times is like explainers of how your game works in the middle of a tournament are nonsense. You want to be explaining how the esports side of it works for a casual viewer. You don't want to explain be explaining how the game works. Like who are you aiming that towards? <laughs> I, that I, yeah, I mean, I could go on a rant about that. I've seen those in so many <laughs> games. They happened in Overwatch years back as well, and I hated them when they happened in there as well because it's just it's just nonsense like if you have to explain how a map works to a viewer then they're not going to stick around anyway you're better off entertaining them or providing them with a cool factor people will stick around if they see something flashy and cool people will stick around if they're entertained they're not going to stick around for a video lecture on how the game works yeah i think overwatch league had a benefit of doing that uh the idea of, of having a city uh, connected because even my friends who never got into starcraft series sports i'll never forgive them but they got into overwatch league esports when it first was announced because yes. they just chose a city and yes and that has been yeah that has been huge actually for overwatch that was something that overwatch has done very very well um the amount of engagement as well with the fans to their specific city seems to be much higher than in other esports as well where in other esports you'll be a fan of a player or a game uh fan of a player or a team or something the amount of like translation into engagement there doesn't seem to be enormous but for overwatch even when it was first announced and the game was very very young there would be i would i would guess something like 30 percent of the audience was wearing jerseys i've never been to a to a tournament where there was that high of a percentage wearing merch that they had bought and they couldn't possibly know anything about the teams that they were supporting because the league had just begun. So yeah. it's like, <laughs> there's no way these guys were in-depth fans of the players that were on the teams. They had been sucked in by the by the team aspect and the good branding and the fact it was associated with the city. That's something that Overwatch League did very, very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had two friends. We, we actually lived near DC, but this was before DC had a team. One chose Houston and the one chose Dallas. And it's just like, they don't come yeah. from Dallas. They don't come from <laughs> Texas. Like, they just were like, these have pretty colors and this guy looks more handsome than the rest yeah that was one of the reasons um but it, it does work out that way so i mean i think it's it's still going to be it's going to be one of those just like 
the question of esports eventually, I think, because when it comes to sustainability and having to have a consistent player base, that does put some pressure, uh, some more pressure, right, on the esport to also be a good video game for decades, which, mm. you know, Brood War still has a scene mostly in Korea, though, and that, that's the longest esport really that's that stayed the same. Sure. And, and, you know, that can't be upwards to the 100,000 viewers all the time. Um, that that's going to be really difficult. And then it's also going to be in combination with the whole idea of like publishers controlling their esport versus no one owns football, even though the NFL yeah. really does the best work with it. I mean, these are all questions that are going to be, um, they're going to pop up, you know, eventually they already are popping up. People are having talk shows about, you know, how can is CSGO really going to be the esport indefinitely? Is that really possible? Or, or is it also going to eventually have to have CS? No, I don't know. The, the yeah. next CSGO game, right? <laughs> like, it's got to advance on. Um, tough, tough questions. You know, and Overwatch is even kind of maybe approaching some of those questions, too, with the whole idea of Overwatch 2 coming out. Um, sure. Is that going to try think, and revitalize the scene or what? I think clearly League of Legends is the closest that any game has got yet to true mainstream appeal of being able to pick up um, a mainstream audience that it, or, or get big enough with its eSport to the point where it's attracting major interest from people who have no interest in League of Legends. Like, whenever Worlds is going on, all of my esports friends are talking about it, even if they don't play or only play very, very casually. Um, it, it definitely attracts all attention because it's this snowball effect. Once it gets big enough, everyone's tuning in to watch it because it's such a big spectacle. Um, and they've, they've really got that uh, positive feedback loop running. But... It, until they run into that issue, until League of Legends has to solve the issue of we don't have enough players to tap into, let's try and go even more mainstream. Like, I'm just going to leave it to them to sort it out. Because, <laughs> like, if they're that enormous and they struggle with, like, the next step, then clearly the the actual next step isn't isn't really going to happen in my opinion like you would have to fundamentally redesign all of the games so that they were mega more mainstream oriented and even then would they even be fun games would they even pop off as the esports like would they even get popular enough with gamers to get mainstream at that point i i don't think you need esports to be as big as the nfl for them to succeed like success within esports can be huge but more ephemeral where it only lasts for um for what a, a decade maybe 15 years max and then it peters out again and some new version takes its place like that would be perfectly fine there's no reason that they have to stick around for 50 100 years um people people's interests change and i, I don't see any reason why the games couldn't change with them I guess it's a it's a rather like delicate spot for me, like me and, and the people in the RTS scene, since uh, you know very much that it seems that people don't really want to make a new RTS, except people yeah. who are already making RTS. So Frost Giants on board, but <laughs> they, you know, let's see what actually happens with them. Yeah. But you know, shooters, people can say like, I'll just hop onto the next battle royale, hop onto the next arena shooter, until maybe that you know falls out of uh, out of favor. Like who knows really what the future holds holds, and that's um. I mean, it's kind of weird. I don't want to keep your time too much, but it is kind of weird, though, because I, I got to imagine, like, back when when football was first getting popular. So let's just say back in, like, the 1920s, because I don't actually remember when football <laughs> got popular. Um, like, were they thinking that, like, were they thinking of the, the like, this will be 100 years from now still being played on, like, national television to everyone, and we're going to worry about 
our our broadcast numbers and whatnot? Probably not. They were just like gonna you know try and work with what we have now. And then slowly up, upon the years, the decades, then there was the the bidding wars over like who could actually broadcast. Then ESPN came in and kind of changed the landscape of broadcasting sports. And anyways, as I said, I don't want to keep her too long, but it, it's kind of <laughs> weird how we we're so eager to compare to traditional sports. Yeah, um, we're nowhere near. It, yeah, exactly. We're nowhere <laughs> near. It's like it's there's so much to be proven. It's just it's it's also just completely different. Like, anyways, uh, I think in general a lot of esports people. No matter what you're doing, basically, we can only look so far. <laughs> we can only be like five years. I kind of have an idea of what I want to do, but anything longer than that, and that's uh, it's pointless, basically. It is. I guess yeah. it's going to happen. It is. It is impossible to kind of predict what will happen in the future as well. And trying to predict that kind of stuff is the <laughs> that's where the uh, the VC firms that that's their <laughs> kind of yeah. domain. So. Yeah, that that's the only aspect that's quite interesting when it comes to this as well, is that those kind of predictions for the future influence quite heavily the investment within the scene, because a lot of these people are investing, expecting, you know, the, the scene to flourish and become extremely profitable at some point in the future, or if not profitable, then at least have massive amounts of revenue in the future. So um, yeah, it's... It, but but that stuff is so far above my pay grade and impossible to predict that I don't even I don't even bother wondering <laughs> about it. Just take the day day to day. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good end point. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around for a couple extra minutes to answer my questions and um, just answer a little bit. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I think this is an amazing conversation. As I said, I really respect you guys over on the Overwatch League and what you you've done with such a difficult game and the uh, the product that you were expected to deliver. So. Just, you know, well done in all fronts. And um, just now I ask you to shout out where people can find you and what you might be doing in the near future. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Um, you can find my stuff at uh, twitch.tv slash sideshow or twitter.com slash sideshowgaming, which I'm so glad that you didn't call me sideshowgaming at the beginning because it's just a horrible suffix <laughs> that I had to add in order to get a unique Twitter account. And I frequently go on the podcast and people are like, hello, I'm joined by sideshowgaming. And I'm like, how did I do this to myself? <laughs> I just created the worst alias possible. Um, yeah, you can find most of my work over there, or you can tune into the Overwatch League and uh, catch me live whenever the season kicks back up again in the spring of 2021. Yeah, awesome stuff. Hopefully by then we'll be talking about some more offline stuff yeah. as well. Um, that'd be great. All right. Uh, thank you all for uh, listening or watching whatever you're doing. And then uh, please check out the Patreon and uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. And I look forward to seeing you guys in two weeks for yet another episode. Bye. The Overwatch League guys are just absolutely brimming with passion and talent and obviously a lot of hard work as well. I feel like this episode and, and Sideshow really, more so than anyone else, pushed the idea of working hard to get where you want to be. And of course, we've got to acknowledge that there's a bit of luck involved in anything you do, but it was actually really uh, motivating to start getting stuff done. So I hope you guys had similar sentiments. But uh, overall, hope you enjoyed the episode. The next episode is going to be with Tasteless, which was something that was supposed to happen a little while ago, but then uh, he was a bit busy and he was moving. So finally, we actually got together and sat down and talked about casting. And I think there's going to be a couple of uh, surprises in our conversations. 
Uh, just his approach to casting, despite being such a veteran, can be very different from the guys that I've, I've already talked to over these 22 episodes. But of course, we had a lot of fun. Always enjoy talking to Tasteless, and he's just one of the uh, the greats of the esports scene. So I, I know many of you are going to be looking forward to that. And if you have been enjoying all the episodes, then do consider checking out the Patreon, patreon.com slash zombiegrub, where you can find things such as behind-the-scenes access, as well as early access, and a couple other things as perks, but also, in general, just a way to support me and all my endeavors. Caster Calls is definitely a passion project and something that I am also using just as a personal way to get better at, at commentary, but I'm hoping that everyone sees it as a, uh, a worthwhile endeavor, I suppose, and that you will consider throwing a few bucks just a couple of uh quarters my way that would be greatly appreciated if not then i always appreciate you just listening to the podcast and sharing it when you think there's been a particular good one i do want to continue improving the quality of it as in maybe you know getting some highlights done maybe some transcripts done stuff like that and i'll probably be updating the patreon with such goals uh very very soon but just in general Go check it out, see if there's anything you like, and as always, big thank you to the people who really do go above and beyond in their support. Alexander, Nick, Steven, Brandon, and Vinny, thank you guys so much. And I look forward to seeing you all back here on Cash Calls a Zombie Grub with Tasteless for episode 23.